You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Hello and welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. As always, I'm your host, David Frizzell. And in this episode, I have a super cool, driven, smart cookie for you to meet. Casey McKinlay's brand new book is called Girls Don't Lay Bricks, which gives you a tiny hint at a tiny part of her story. But as you're about to find out, there's much more to Casey than the fact that she became an actual bricklayer. Deep-seated entrepreneurial tendencies, determination, and incredible opportunity-seeking antenna are just some of her qualities. The early part of her adulthood was shaped by an abusive relationship, proving that even the strong of mind are not immune from the ravages of unrest. But as Casey explains, it's what you do next that counts. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Casey McKinlay. Casey McKinlay, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you, Casey. And I read your book today, all basically in one go. And I don't often do that, you know, and and to be honest, I don't often read all of the books that I get, the whole book, because I get so many of them and I do so many podcast interviews. If I was to do that, I'd spend my life reading. But your book had me absolutely gripped and I literally read it from cover to cover in a couple of hours. It was absolutely fabulous. Have you had much feedback about the book so far? I've had a lot of people say similar to what you've said where they just couldn't put it down and they just wanted to sit there and read the whole thing. They couldn't find a spot where they could just step away from it for a mm. moment. So it is quite good to hear and that was the idea of it to for it to be short enough to possibly sit in one sitting and just read the whole thing. That must be gratifying for you to have poured your heart and soul, your life story into this book. I, I called it a novel accidentally before, but it's not really a novel. It's an autobiography, I guess, to this point in your young life. It must be gratifying for you to put all that effort in and get such positive feedback from just about everyone who reads it, I imagine. It really is. It was a two-year process to actually put it all into writing, get it into book format and get it out there to people. So to see everyone's response to it now, considering how long it's taken me to do, it's really nice. Two years. Wow. I imagine it would. It feels like, because it flowed so nicely, it feels like you just sat down one day and let it all pour out. That's how it comes across. But of course, the writing process is much more complex than that. Hey, Casey, the reason your book is so cool is because it was written really nicely. And as you said before we hit record, it has no fluff. It cuts to the chase. But Mainly, your book is fantastic because your story is so fantastic, the story of your life so far. So we're not going to retell it in a linear kind of beginning to end way. What I'd like to do with you during our conversation is just pluck out some of the really strong themes that emerged for me as I read it, and I'll get you to elaborate on that. Tell us about the stories in your life that links to that theme and and the lessons that you learned along the way. I'll hit you with the first one, and maybe the first one is the most controversial at all of of all of them. You set yourself up really clearly early in your book. I felt like I got to know your character really early. 
you were starting at a new school. I think you got kicked out of your old school for making mischief. And early in your time at your new school, you saw a fight on the Oval. And in that fight, as strange as it was to see this all in brawl, you said one of the things that you couldn't help but notice was the hair of everyone at the school. There was a real trend at that school to have braided hair. And this is where I started to learn about you. So within days of being at this new school, you decided that you would teach yourself to braid hair because these kids were getting their hair braided for 75 bucks a pop at the local market. And you decided that that was an, a market. There was a market right there. Not only could you meet lots of new people, get some street cred in your new school, you also earned a fair bit of cash along the way. And don't worry, I'm not going to talk this whole time. You will get a chance. But the next two things that fit with that really nicely were, again, at that new school, you noticed that there was a year 11 and a year 12 formal, nothing for the year 10s. You saw that as an opportunity. You created this year 10 formal. And after weeks of organizing and recruiting your little team of friends, you put on this formal of more than 200 kids who all paid their admission and you made a whole bunch of cash. And then the last one, before I throw it to you, and this is where I'm getting to know you, is you decide that school in its traditional sense is not for you, and that's no surprise given those first two things. So you decided to go down the vocational path, the, the kind of half school, half TAFE path. And before we know it in the book, you're on site as a, as a tradie, a bricklayer on a construction site. That's all so interesting. And as I say, it, it made me feel like I got to know you. But this is where the question comes. But then into your life comes your first major relationship with a guy called Chris, the guy who turned out to be the father of your child, and it just did not make sense. The way that this guy treated you and the way that it went on and the way that you tried to justify it and rationalize it in your head, I guess essentially what you were willing to put up with in this relationship did not fit with the young lady I felt like I got to know in the first three parts of that story. Help me make sense of that. Well, it's actually amazing how quick you can lose yourself when you're trying to justify the fact that you're in love with someone. And so it goes from zero to 100 quite quickly. And when I eventually felt pregnant to that guy, Chris, he kind of had this control over me that I didn't see coming myself. It unfolded in a way that I wouldn't have been able to predict and being the strong person I am and was, I got lost in the relationship. I lost myself in that. And it's common actually for females and men alike. So yeah, it was just as surprising to me at the end of the relationship to look back and go, oh, how how did that even happen? How did I allow that to happen? But I definitely used it as a learning curve and, and never allowed it to happen again. For the benefit of our listeners who may not have read the book, can you tell us some of the stuff that was going on in that relationship? Tell us, for a start, how old you were, where you were in life, and what kind of things began happening in that relationship that for you, maybe in hindsight, were warning bells or, or alarms, red flags that you would pick up on second time around? Well, I was 17. I'd just done, I'd been bricklaying for two years at that time. I I met this guy that I thought was a, a pretty cool guy, laid back. Uh, we we're getting to know each other. And then I went off to 
to Africa for a month building classrooms. So I went and did something that was for me. Now, red flags started just before I left because the insecurities of of him came into play of, but are you going to hook up with anyone while you're on this trip? Are you going to, who are you going to be around? Are you going to be going out? Are you going to party? What are you doing? I was going with a church group to build classrooms in a remote village in Africa. There was <laughs> you, you were doing a good thing. Yeah, I was doing a, a great thing. And he was already asking these sort of questions that were coming into play. Now, I didn't think anything of it at the time. I just thought he cared a lot. But looking back on the types of questions that he was asking, it was actually insecurity that was coming through. So then I come back from Africa and uh, within a month I'm actually now pregnant to him. And his anger started to show at that time when he wasn't getting what he wanted, say if I wanted to go out and go for a walk and it was without him, he would get angry about that. And then the drinking as well. So he was drinking more and more and I noticed myself actually putting dates in my calendar to to look back on the previous month and go, actually, how many days did he pick up a drink and how many days did he didn't because it was more likely that he did than he didn't. And I was connecting. You made the point that it was easier to count the days that he didn't drink. Yes. Well, that's exactly it. And I was realizing that. So that was another another realization of him and the substance abuse that came into play that I would look back on now and go, all right, actually, that was a red flag. That's not someone you have a baby with. That's not someone you get into a relationship with. So those sorts of things really came into play. How did you approach this when you were writing the book? Because I don't know, I guess if you stand back from the book, it's this incredible success story for business and, and the, the the life of the young lady that, that led up to all of those bold decisions that you made. And we'll get to those. But you had this period of your life that amounts to, I don't know, f- f- psychological abuse, I guess. Yeah. And you you were writing that and you wrote it in a very clear way. Were you aware that the domestic violence part of your story was going to be one that people latched onto and that was going to be a theme that got some attention? And maybe for some people, it's more of the story than the success that you talk about? No, I didn't. I didn't realise that. I knew that um, people relate to different aspects of my book, but I didn't pick that one up. And I know that a lot of uh, single women, especially single mums, go through that and they're trying to look at ways that they could, say, get out on the other side. So I looked at that scenario and went, actually, I see what my life could be like if I stayed with you and I want to run as far away from it as possible. And that's what I did. And has that domestic violence or the psychological kind of abuse that you received, has that been something that people have reached into your book and sort of plucked out and wanted to talk to you about and wanted to give attention to just that element? Yes. Well, it's probably a more of a reason that my book gets shared. Right. So I find a lot of people come to me and say, actually, I my friend needed to read this and I gave my book, your book to to my friend to read so she could understand maybe a bit more about her situation because it's really hard to see the situation you're in when you're in it. When you're on the outside, it's easy to look in. And I think when people are reading the book, they're relating some of the aspects or some of the traits to Chris going, actually, my boyfriend does a little bit of this and I didn't see it in this way. And now I'm starting to see it in this way. It's um, For me, one of the things was 
a bit of fear looking at that situation and knowing how strong a person you were, how courageous, how clear thinking, how confident in your own abilities, all of those other qualities that you have, but you were able to get stuck in that situation. And that actually makes me a bit nervous because not every young woman has the kind of other qualities that you have. So for many other women, it must be an even more difficult thing to climb out of than it was for you. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And like, it still surprises my friends to this day or my family, considering they were watching this unfold going, what a nightmare. And, and then a child was thrown into a mix and they just couldn't believe how it was going to play out and, and didn't want it to, to get any worse for me and didn't know how to get me out of it. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. How is it still being so attached to that relationship? You're attached to that relationship because you have a little boy who, I did the rough maths today, is going to turn 11 this November. So you and that relationship had a little boy. Kingston. And uh, so you're still attached to his dad in that way. And now you're attached to him in that he's such a big part of this book that you've written. How does that sit with your life now? Well, now it, it's been a long journey for us and we, we now do what's necessary to, for Kingston. And in that actually don't have a relationship ourselves. So we are, we are not friends. We are not anything except for Kingston's parents. So what time are you picking him up? Great. This time you'll be there at this. This event's happening this weekend. That's it. And just keeping it as basic as possible meant that we could both live our lives sort of drama-free, probably the second half of Kingston. So probably for the last five or so years, it's been better once we sort of went, actually, like, let's just not get involved in either of our lives, keep it as separate as possible and stay stick to basics, which is this is your weekend, this weekend's mine and this is what you need to do and this is what I need to do and let's just do that. And it works like clockwork more than anything. You're making it work. Yeah. Hey, I don't know if you realise, one of the other themes that came through a few times is you mentioned this picture you had in your head of the happy family and that's why you stayed with Chris longer than you might have that's why you broke up with your first relationship after Chris because his approach to you having a child wasn't going to create this picture of happy family. The partner that you have now did and you could see with him that, that the happy family was going to be possible. Where did this really clear picture of happy family come from and were you aware that it came through so strongly in the book? No, I wasn't actually. It was something that I was focused on, on how a life should be. Everyone sort of pushes at the picture of two parents and children and, and that's how life should be. And I've watched my parents, you know, they're still together after 35 years and that's what I wanted. I wanted someone that I could stay with. I've made my choices. I'm going to stick with you no matter what. And slowly I had that dream break and it broke in my head and I hung on to it because it was the happiest thought I had at the time and that's why I stayed with him because that was my happy thought to have that happy family and that picture in my head 
And I think it was harder to let go of that picture than it was to actually break up with him. So there's no, no matter what, we're going to achieve this, this picture of happy family. It's a really interesting theme, actually. All right, now, let me get on to some more productive stuff, stuff that is, is beyond that relationship. One of the other themes that, is that, that you couldn't read the book and not pick up is you are someone who takes opportunities with both hands. I brushed up against a couple of the early opportunities, and I love the hair braiding story and the year 10 formal story. They're, they're fantastic stories of a young entrepreneur, someone who is hardwired to look for opportunity. But you've done that a number of times since then in, in quite big ways. Tell us about how you have grown to understand that tendency you have to look for opportunities and grab them with both hands. Is it as clear in your mind as it comes through in your book? It actually is. I've got a perfectly good understanding that I need to create my own opportunities and no one's going to hand them to me. And that's what I've done. So my eyes are always looking for that opportunity to to be able to support myself and have that financial freedom that I think is important in life to have, you know, sort of a, a happy, carefree life. It financial independence is a way to get that. And so I, I knew early on, and especially when I was doing the hair braiding, when I was earning $50 an hour at 13 years old, I, I had that grasp of I can look for these opportunities and I need to create them. No one's going to hand it to me. So tell us a story about how the career played out when you, you're a very young mum. So you, you had Kingston a couple of weeks before your 18th birthday party. So an exceptionally young mum. I, by the way, am at the other end of the scale. I had my first child when I was 37 and that was rammed home to me in your book when you, so all my kids are younger than your kids, that you talked about Googling something very early in high school. And I thought, oh my goodness, the internet wasn't even around when I was in high school. And and uh, you seem to be uh, well ahead of the curve. It was, is, and your kids are older than, than mine or your, your boy is older than any of my kids. It was, it, like I said, that moment when you Googled something at school made me realize this is a young lady we're talking about here, still a young lady. It was quite an awakening for me. Hey, tell us about creating a path for yourself career-wise and having a young boy. So Kingston was very young. You started studying. You did a little bit of online study. Then you went. You did some TAFE studying. I love the story you told of being offered that very safe, secure job in a bank, which was beyond the wildest dreams of a young single mum doing a TAFE course. You got offered this really great job at a bank, but of course, you turned it down, much to the chagrin of your parents at the time. Tell us about making that decision and what plan you had and how it all played out. Oh, my parents were not impressed, but I knew that I could do more. And if I locked myself into having that weekly wage from a bank, it would be really hard to change that. You'd still be so, there. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I was coming off from scratch. So I had nothing at that point in time. So I could afford to take that little bit of risk, back myself, <laughs> because no one else thought I was going to be able to go in and own my own company. I was told to stay as a sole trailer, a trader because I wouldn't earn enough to entail setting up a whole company. And within my first year, I actually blitzed that amount and did need to have a company in the end. So I'm happy that I did back myself. But 
I decided that I would create a company again because I was a single mum at such a young age. I needed financial independence. I wanted him to have a good life and have everything that he needed, and it was on me. I didn't have anyone to help me do that. No one else was going to provide for him. So in my head, I was like, "All right, to be a mum and have a good income that actually sort of meant own my own business." It just clicked in my head like that's that's what I needed to do, and and that was the time to take the risk to do it. That period of your life was characterized by what I'm starting to see so broadly is that parenting conundrum. You started to have a number of wins in your business in the early days. You were doing all of this. You, you were single-mindedly focused to, to set up this life for Kingston and you were making progress. You had this thriving business and we'll talk a little bit more about your business soon, but you had this thriving business and then you realized, hey, I'm doing all this for Kingston, but I'm actually not spending much time with Kingston at all. I'm completely focused on this business, which started off because of my need to look after Kingston. So tell us about that conundrum and the ongoing, the ongoing battle to find balance in your life. I think everyone has this battle. It's work-life balance. And as a parent, you can't always get it right, but you, you can correct yourself and when things are going terribly wrong and I was working 24 hours a day, I was caught up in the thought that everyone else has when they start a business. I need to be there 24 hours a day. I need to be accessible. I need to be at every single job for myself to make sure that this company was successful. And it's a lie. Uh, no one needs to work that much. And I had people that could go out and do those jobs for me. And once I realized that Kingston actually decided he would prefer to stay at childcare rather than come back to me. I clicked and went, no, no, I need to make sure I have this relationship with my child because what's the point then in life? What is the point if you don't have a relationship with your family? So I made the changes in my business to make sure that was possible, you know, put the phone down at a certain time of night, make sure that the time you do have is quality. And, you know, I'm not saying don't go into work, but I'm saying there's different changes that could happen. You don't need to be accessible 24 hours a day. Tell us about those businesses that you built. So if your situation is still the same as it was at the end of the book, you've got two fairly separate kind of businesses that are very distinct from each other. Tell us if that's still the case and describe for us what those businesses are and how you got each of them up and running. Oh, so that's a, a lot of questions in one. Actually. I, I hope you're taking notes because I'm not repeating that. <laughs> All right. So <laughs> both companies, my first company was the promotions company. That was an events company that staffed all the major shopping centres. So I had the Westfields, the DFOs and Mervac centres. We would do cooking demonstrations, anything from kids' activities to flyer distribution, anything that you may need staff for, it came through me. So I made my money, obviously, from hiring different people out. They would get paid per hour and then I'd pay them a lesser amount. That was the whole business. Or I'd come up with different activities and events, campaigns, different things like that. That was the whole promotions company. I got into that because as a young mum, I needed a casual job. I was unemployed and I got into, I applied for different promotional jobs for different promotional agencies. So I was working multiple casual jobs for different agencies so I could have enough work through the week because it's all casual. And I was working in the shopping centres. I had one of the Westfields want to start a campaign 
where they were competing against all the other different shopping centres to be number one in Australia for it was data acquisition at the time. And so we just had to get so many different forms filled out. I knew that over the course of the campaign, if I managed to put this shopping centre number one, the one that I worked at, they would want to book me out for different campaigns. And that was my opportunity to set myself up as my own company. So when that conversation did happen at the end of the campaign, when I put them number one, I could turn around and say, actually, if you want me, you've got to come through me and get them as a client. Now that all happened. So at this end of the campaign, I put them number one. They did come to me and say, I want to book you for all these different events. And I said, yep, if you want me, you've got to come through me. And then they threw me a curveball, which was, could you supply staff? Now, I hadn't thought of that at the time. I was just thinking about me and my employment and I needed to make money. And they're like, oh, could you give us all these people? And then I was just quick to say yes and thought, well, I've got cousins, friends and people that I could rope in to hire. So I got people that I could rely on to, that would need money. So surely, yes, I can do that. And within five years, I had over 100 staff and multiple clients. I'd worked on Kim Kardashian's Quick Trim campaign, Ricky Martin's appearance for The Voice. There was lots of fun things that I, I managed to do. But in that, I knew that I needed to diversify a little bit. So the main thought to that was, I wanted to be able to buy a house. They, most banks actually want you to have two incomes. So usually it's you and a partner go in together and buy a house. I didn't want to have to have that second income to do it. And I saw an opportunity in creating another income for myself for that to happen. I had saved up enough money and I needed storage also for the promotions company. So I bought a factory and for the sole purpose of having storage for the promotions company, because you can imagine there was fairy floss machines, costumes and all different things. And I was living at my parents' house. Again, they were not impressed with all of that overflowing into, into the lounge room out of the garage, but eventually being able to, to buy the, the factory and have that sort of storage area, I realised that I had more space than I needed and I could create another company. And I had a hobby at the time, which was aerial dance, which is pole dancing, aerial hoop, aerial silks. You see Pink do it. She wraps herself up and drops out of the sky. That's the sort of stuff I was doing at the time. And where I bought the factory, there was a half an hour radius of no one offering what we offered. And so I decided to put my little builder's hat on and, and renovate it and turn it into an aerial dance studio, which was my second company. So I've got, I love it. I built up both those companies and sold my promotions company. It would have been a year ago. And I sold the aerial dance business, but not the building six months ago, just before all this happened. So I'm quite happy actually with the term, like the way it all happened, but I've got the building still leased out to the new owners of the business. So I, I managed to get a, a double investment out of that. It's quite happy. So reading between the lines, you sold them. You were very happy with the terms you said, so you sold them for a good profit. I, I love those stories because it just fits with that 13-year-old girl who started braiding hair. It's that girl all grown up. That's the yeah. kind of way that you were doing business. And the bit that you kind of glossed over was you were working as a promo girl because, as you said, you needed cash, and you quickly got a reputation as someone that they wanted. So the shopping centres would specifically request you from the company that you were working at. 
and that would happen to a lot of people, I'm sure, in some way in their career. But for you, it just twigged this whole understanding that, hang on, they don't want the company I work for. They want me. And then you worked out very quickly that you were getting paid 25 bucks an hour, but the company was charging you out at 50 bucks an hour. Yeah. And again, a lot of people would just get frustrated by that, maybe feel a bit burnt or just say, hey, that's the way it is because that is the way it is. But you just decided, I need to work out a plan so I get that whole 50 bucks. Yeah. And that's what you did. You put it on the line and you and when they came to you, here you are, you're still a single mom, just earning casual money. You took the risk. They came to you after you had great success for them and said, oh, we want you to do another program, another campaign. And you said, well, if you want me, you come through my company. And that is a really gutsy move because you could have stepped on a few toes there. Uh, you might have lost your casual job. You might have not got the gig to start with and lost your casual job from the agency that was employing you. And and, and I don't know, was there any bad blood between you and the agency that you sort of cut out of the loop there? I never spoke to them again, but <laughs> Why would you? I had a good relationship with the shopping centres and I was on the ground and that was the difference about my company as well. I continued to be on the ground and know their needs. Yeah. And if the other company is not willing to do that, I can't help that. <laughs> you beat them. You beat them for quality. Exactly. That's, that's the way it worked. I love it. Hey, I didn't know that you'd sold both your businesses. That's obviously come since you finished writing the book. Yeah. What are you doing now then? I'm sure you're not at home knitting. No. So I do motivational speaking in schools and for businesses. So I've been doing talks at, like, at the likes of, say, the Australian Club in Melbourne, which is all the, the men down there and at different universities as well have been getting me out in conferences. So that's been actually fun alongside the book. I've got a four-month-old baby girl. So it was through that pregnancy that I decided to sell the aerial dance studio business. I just thought it was time to take it easy, but I'm not. I'm not taking it easy. I can't help myself. So I've created an aerial silks competition. It's the first for Australia, which started actually two years ago. So last year, it was the first year it ran and we ran in Melbourne and Brisbane and this year we were meant to do four events but of course Span has been thrown in the works with this pandemic sure has. Um, which has been changed to a video competition now so I've been growing that as well and well actually no no we don't go to the what next question how have you found the speaking thing because of all the stuff that you have done really well and all of the opportunities you've taken with both hands getting up in front of an audience and talking about it is kind of a separate skill. So you are great to speak with. You're obviously very good at it just from this conversation we've had now. How has the transition been for you to speaking in that type of forum and what have you learned about yourself through that process? Well, I like to challenge myself and have something different. So stepping into speaking was that next challenge. I learned a lot in the process. I, I started at a school. A principal wanted me to come out and talk to a group of students and I was like, look, I'm just going to give this a go. I'll step out. And he'd heard about my story and he was like, I just think you'd be perfect. Turns out I was going into it, but I was not good at it then. So I ended up swearing in front of the principal and, and making a, a few that. blunders. But it was a learning experience of how to engage and to learn when you're losing people and how to grab them back in actually was a whole nother technique because it's one thing trying to get someone to do do something that you want to do in the promotions field, but it's to keep them engaged for over an hour was a whole nother element. So I've 
it was fun to learn. I like I've decided I've liked to, I like to learn different things in different industries. So stepping into that was a fun, challenging learning curve, and it continues to change as I go. People have asked me for workshops, so I'm now creating workshops for people to do, and going from there and seeing where it takes me. And doing it, I'm sure, in exactly the same kind of style and determination that you've done each of these other endeavors, dating right back to the hair braiding and the formal creation. Hey, I'm, I'm wondering, for those people who are around you and close to you in life, these really strong characteristics that you clearly have that have brought you so much success, what's the downside to that? The people who are around you who see all that success but see the, you know, maybe say the underbelly of those characteristics. What is the underbelly of that? Oh, they see the ups and the downs of everything. The people that are close to me have been chosen as the golden ones over time. You know, you choose the best of the best and you keep them around you. And my friends, they would probably say the downside to that is they can't have any excuses with me. So if, if someone's complaining to me, there's no excuse. What are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? You know, it's not, you can't blame someone else for your circumstance. You can either take control of it or sit there and be a victim. And I don't believe in anyone ever just sitting there and being the victim. I can empathize with people and their situation and understand if someone's had a, a hard road. But I think that at some point you've got to turn around and go, but what are you doing about it? What changes are you making? What are you doing to step out and be the best version of yourself? Because you're the only one in control of that. You can't blame anyone else. So my friends would say that would probably be the the worst bit because, yeah, they can't can't complain to me whatsoever. I have just two questions left. Now, each of your endeavours so far have kind of been organic. They've kind of been around you and you've seen the opportunity, grabbed it with both hands and made a real fist of it. So I wonder... Do you plan then what's next? Can you imagine what's next? Or is it just going to have to kind of be around you and you you grab that opportunity like you have so many times before? What people don't realize is actually they all overlap. So I've got my next thing planned up years in advance and I've already stepped into it. So people think that this book's just popped out of nowhere, but I started this two years ago. And again, I had the aerial dance studio five years into having my other business. So I had the promotions company for eight years and it ended up being three of that. I had the aerial dance studio and I had it for two more before I sold it. So everything overlapped and that included the the competition that I've stepped into. I started that while I was getting out of the aerial dance studio. So everything's had a year or two backlog for me to step into. So I'm always got multiple things on the go. And yes, it, it looks like I've, I've just created it from scratch or, or it's or just ready to go and it's already successful, but it's actually taken a couple of years in the process to get it there. So I'm always on the lookout. It depends. I am always on the lookout for what could be my next project to sort of just start ticking away in the background until I'm ready to maybe drop something that I'm already doing and, and step into the next thing. But So what is the next thing? Oh, the next thing... Uh, at the moment, it's stepping into different businesses and still doing the motivational speaking and, and growing that as much as I can and exploring all the opportunities that come from that, as well as the, the aerial dance competition that's, you know, that expanded to four states for this year already. But there's going to be more that comes from that. We had plans or I had plans. I always reference these companies, even though I solely own them. I always say we. I'm 
always in a team element, but I am the team. So it's <laughs> <laughs> a good mindset. Yeah. It's a healthy mindset because you do have people around you. You do have staff and people helping you, but you're undeniably the boss, and and that comes through very clearly. Hey, uh, last question. Through your wonderful narrative that you've written there, on the sidebar, there's a whole bunch of little lessons that you learned along the way from different experiences. Give us your top three. Top three. There's these little these little succinct nuggets. Was back yourself. That would be my number one. Absolutely back yourself. Have high standards for who you date and who you allow into your relationship. Don't drop them. Loneliness, I understand comes into play a little bit but really love yourself and don't drop those standards whatsoever and look for opportunities they're out there create your own those were that would be my top three they're fantastic and that's a great way for us to end casey mckinlay i've enjoyed speaking with you just as much as i enjoyed reading your book thanks for coming on the podcast oh thank you for having me That was Casey McKinlay. What a story. I love chatting with her. She does such an awesome job of making sense of her experiences and understanding where her success comes from. And her top three pieces of advice, back yourself, have high standards for who you bring into your life and create your own opportunities. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from my conversation with Casey on the Lessons Learned page for this podcast. You'll find it along with the entire back catalogue of Team Guru podcasts on our website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. Connect with me on Twitter, Facebook, SoundCloud or LinkedIn and join me for the next episode on this, my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of leadership. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.